So we are at the end of the retreat. And this is the last Dharma talk of the series. And I know I've gotten a couple of notes, and I imagine Howie and Gil have as well, expressing some anxiety about, okay, now what? You know, we've done this on the cushion for a few days, and what's going to happen when I go home? And it's interesting, actually, isn't it? When you come here, it's such a shift, and it takes that first day to kind of shift gears. And then, you know, they're sitting and walking, and the deer, and the ravens, and the eagles, and the turkey vultures, and lunch, and dharma talks. And it's kind of a whole different world. And when you look at Monday, <laughs> there's that sense, I know, sometimes of, oh, I'm going back into it. And we all know what it's like. You know, you go back in, and then we get caught. And you think, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do it different this time. And whether this is your first retreat or your 10th retreat, you know, you're hoping that you're going to do it different this time. And then, you know, some time passes. And what happens? There you are doing it again, whatever it is. So we all know, about everybody here, I'll bet, has done the same relationship at least twice, right? You think you're going to do a new relationship this time. It's a different man or a different woman. And then six weeks or six months or six years into it, you go, oh, he wasn't different. He was the same, just like the one I left. And I have to deal with it. Or you discover that you have the same boss again, you know, and you thought you were in a new job, but you're not really in a new job. It's the old job. It might even be worse. Or you're talking to your adolescent kid who's being difficult, and your mouth opens, and all of a sudden, who's speaking? It's your mother or your father, not you. You know, those awful moments when... I realize that I sound just like my mother. Or, as happened to me not too long ago, somebody came and sat me down and said, you know, you have to do something about your grumpy and irritable behavior. <laughs> and we've watched you do this many times, and it's a pattern. I, it made me grumpy and irritable, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But it also what is a pattern, and it's something that, like many people, I've struggled with. And something very wonderful happened after that, because I was thinking about it and thinking, what did I want to do about it? And I happened across an ad for a new CD that Pema Chidron has just put out. And the name of the CD, we've got it down at the bookstore, you can go get it tomorrow, is don't bite the hook. And I went, oh, what a wonderful title. It felt like I'd been given the teaching. I didn't need anything else. Maybe I don't even need to say anything else tonight. Maybe that's enough. That's the title, Don't Bite the Hook. You've got what you need. You can go home now. <laughs> don't bite the hook, you know. It just was such a gift, and it really got me 
to thinking about, okay, how is it, how would it be, what would it be not to bite the hook? But, of course, as I thought about it and worked with it a bit, what's true is it sounds very simple, and it's not. It's not easy at all, just like pretty much all the rest of the practice, right? It sounds very simple, sit, pay attention, come back over and over again, you know, the instructions aren't really elaborate when you think about it too much. And it's really, really hard to do. You all know that by now. So we've been sitting. And one of the things that I'm sure you're aware of is some of those cyclic, repetitive stories that um, the relationships you've been in over and over again, the same job over and over again, come up over and over again in the mind, right? They cycle through in the mind. And you play them out sometimes, hoping that maybe you're going to find something different. And so I thought we could look at that tonight, that we'd look at what is it, what is it to get caught in these patterns, and what is it that allows us to find some freedom. So I wanted to tell you a series of stories. I'm going to talk about four different um, people, actually. Some of them, one of them me, and two of them from a long time ago, and one of them someone else. So the first person is a a woman, a friend, who, um, as a child, was hospitalized for a number of surgeries. And she wasn't very well protected in this process by her parents, and kind of discounted as being damaged by her mother, and um, had really, really difficult doctors. And, And... is old enough so that she comes from a time when children weren't really cared for well and carefully in the medical system. So that's one person. And then one of the stories I want to tell you about is about how about, let's see how long now, about 12 years ago, um, married to the man that I am now, I fell in love with someone else. And Fairly quickly, I thought, okay, this settles it. I'm done. I'm out of here. The marriage is over. And I left, and I came back, and I was thinking, no, I really was going to have to leave. So that's the second story. The third story is the story from the time of the Buddha. And that's the story of a young man whose name was Ahimsa, which means non-harming. And Ahimsa was the student in his day of a great spiritual teacher. And he was the best student. He was the A-plus guy. He was the teacher's pet. And he was really accomplished. And the other students got kind of jealous, the story goes. And so they began to plot his downfall. And they finally cooked up a plan. And they went and talked to the teacher. And they said, Ahimsa is having an affair with your wife. And he said, no, 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 that would never happen. But they went back several times, and they kept saying, no, he really is. And and you know how that is. You start hearing the story, and then you look for it, right? You look for what you think you might see, and then maybe you see it. And so he, the teacher, developed this antipathy for uh, Ahimsa, And so he created a plan to sort of create his real downfall. 
and he sent him out to kill 1,000 people. And at first Ahimsa said, no, you know, that's not a spiritual practice. You can't do that. And, but his teacher, the way sometimes teachers who are powerful can misuse their power, did misuse his power, and he persuaded him that he should go and do this terrible thing. Okay, so that's the third story. And then the fourth story is a story that is very close to my heart, and that's about one of the great Chinese emperors whose name was the Emperor Wu. And in his day, he was a great warrior and also a spiritual seeker. Uh, but no matter how hard he looked, he couldn't seem to find really good, authentic, solid spiritual teachings. So those are our four case studies, if you will. The Buddha taught over and over and over again about the nature of suffering and difficulty in our lives and about its origin and, and talked about the development of suffering, dis-ease, if you will, lack of ease, dissatisfactoriness with our lives. And he really wanted all beings to learn to live with serenity and equanimity, to be contented and to be at ease. And so when he began to teach, a lot of his teaching, and really all of his teaching, if you, if you read the suttas, you begin to see how many of the different discourses come back to the same general thrust. So the, the core of the teachings is something that's called the Four Noble Truths, and many of you know this very well. And so the first is that there is this, we have this experience of things just are never right. They're not satisfactory. They're, there's suffering around them. There's pain around them. And no matter what you do, it doesn't ever stay perfect. And if you think about it, this is very evident. We all know that this is true in our lives. No matter what happens, no matter what you get that you've wanted all this time, sooner or later, then something comes along and then it's not so good. Some of, some of our suffering is just out and out painful. We hurt, we're sick, we get old, we die. Some of it's um, the way in which everything's impermanent and it just comes and it goes. And there's just nothing that's inherently satisfactory. And so he says this, this, this suffering, this dukkha, he called it, is created because we want, we want. We, we get attached. We want things to be the way we want them to be. We're possessive in our relationships. We're addicted. We are controlling. We do all of the many, many things that we do to try to get things to be different from the way that they are. And he said, you know, some of the dukkha, he called it dukkha dukkha, actually, which I kind of like, sort of like suffering, suffering, is the, the stuff, the pain of life. But um, the, the place that's really the problem is the place that is the attachment, the clinging, if you will, the um, addiction. But then he taught, in the third truth, he said it's possible not to get caught. And it's possible to be free. It's possible for there to be an end of suffering. My friend Sylvia Borstein 
likes to say there's a third and a half noble truth, which is sometimes there's an end of suffering. So, you know, most of us know the third and a half one better than we know the third, which is kind of nice, actually. I like that. And then in the fourth truth, he taught the path, the Eightfold Path, which we're not going to talk about so much tonight. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow morning before we send you out, which is really the way to be lived, the, the training that leads to freedom, if you will. So a wise way of understanding and intention and living your life wisely and carefully with action and speech and a choice of livelihood, and then training your mind as you have been doing here with um, effort and mindfulness and concentration. Also in these basic teachings about the difficulty of life and the suffering, he said that in any given moment, what we're doing is we're living out the consequences of our previous actions. We're living out the consequences of our previous actions. And not only our own actions, but of course we're impacted by the actions of many, many other people, our family and friends and nations and cultures and all of that kind of thing. This is the teaching about karma, right? So the word karma actually means action. It has to do with the reverberation. I always think of it as, you know, you hit the bell and it reverberates for a long time. And so it's, it's like that. We talk about it, you know, you, there's karma Howie probably has an ad that has karma in it, I imagine, since he has other kinds of ads. You know, the, the advertising folks use that stuff all the time. And it's talked about kind of simplistically. Oh, that's my karma. It's not simple. And the Buddha actually reminded us of it. He says, it's very vast. It's very, it's unthinkable. And actually, you know, if you think, just for fun for a minute, Think of all of the actions and their consequences that allow, it, allow all of us to be here in this hall at this very moment. You know, so you have your personal stuff that got you here, and you have all of what happened with Jack and Joseph and all the people who brought Buddhism to America and all the wonderful people who built this building and all the people in the government of Marin who allowed us to have this land, not to mention the Nature Conservancy who told it, sold it to us, and then it goes back and it goes out and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it's, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. It's vast. So um, he, one of the things that he did was he folded these sufferings about suffering and the end of suffering together with the teachings about karma and, and he often talked about the wheel or the cycle of suffering, how these actions and their consequences go around and around and around. So this brings us to where we started, you know, that we know, you all know that. You know the cyclic nature of suffering. And in some systems, this is understood to be over many lifetimes, but it's perfectly workable in terms of looking at what goes on in your own life in this world. So, when something happens, when you perceive something, your mind is informed by all of your past experiences. That's pretty simple. The memory of your experiences, the things that's hap that have happened to you, that is in the mind, and um, informs your perception. Now, sometimes this is useful. That big thing barreling towards you down the road is a truck. 
get out of the way, don't let it run over you, because if it does, you'll get squashed, and don't want that to happen, so you move. Great, you know, useful information. But sometimes it's not so useful, and we see things not quite so clearly, and then we continue the cycle. It's so hard to come to a moment of experience completely fresh. So if you think for a minute, think about most, probably most of you live with someone, with friends or a partner, or you've raised kids, and if you're not living with someone right now, you have in the past. And think about what it's like when the person you're in relationship with, your best beloved, say, knows and has said, oh yes, dear, I will be home at 5.30. Are we familiar with this scenario? Yes? I will be there. So, you know, 5.15 comes and you're kind of going around the house, getting ready because your beloved or your child or whoever your friend is coming. And then it gets to be 5.25 and you start going, oh, good, you know, they'll be here pretty soon. And then it's 5.30 and they're not here. And then it's 5.45 and then it's 6 o'clock and maybe it gets to be 6.15 or 6.30. And, you know, it's possible you were already a little grumpy in the course of the day and they're not here. And then you hear the car and the door opens, okay? We do not usually see clearly in those moments, right? And in the Buddhist form of understanding, this is a kind of ignorance. You're not seeing clearly. You can't see clearly. You're usually seeing through the lens, if you will. Just think of it almost like having a contact lens in your eye, or maybe one that's been surgically implanted. You know, so you're seeing through the lens of memory, of your past, of a particular consciousness that comes from some old story. You know, maybe abandonment, loss, those kinds of things. And so your consciousness that you bring to that particular moment has a particular flavor. It might be defensive, it might be angry, it might be desirous, it might be terrified. But often, we don't see it. We feel a little righteous, sometimes, or not, and we don't see clearly. We do not see clearly in those moments. If you doubt this, imagine that the door opens and the person walks, uh, who walks into the room, this isn't the late person, a person walks in who looks just like your mother. Do you see clearly? It's very hard, isn't it? It's so hard because everything in you is informed by however many years you spent with the person who is your mother. Joseph Goldstein, who was the friend and teacher of many of us, used to say, I loved it when he would say this, he would say, notice how you build houses of thought, houses of ideas, and then we inhabit them. We live in these houses that are made of our stories, and we look at our experience through the windows in that house, in that house. So we come to a moment which is, as all moments are, completely conditioned by our previous moments. 
And our perceptions in that moment are also conditioned. So when that happens, something happens, <clears throat> we connect. We, you know, we, the, person, the late person walks through the door, and we have an event, and there's this whole perceptual process that happens very, very fast, seeing, hearing, whatever. We make some contact, and then the, the, we're seeing through the lens, mind you, the experience registers as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We talked about this a little bit last night in a slightly different way. So it's a very important place in this practice. And often we react. I want it. I hate it. Get it out. No, bring it toward me. It's great. It's awful. Whatever the reaction is. This is also it plays out a lot in falling in love, in case you haven't made that connection. You know, where you see somebody and you know that this is the person you've been waiting for because they have the most beautiful shoes or whatever. <laughs> shoes, shoes are big on retreat because you've got your eyes down, right? So, <laughs> I think a lot of Vipassana romances have started around shoes and shawls. <laughs> so, your loved one who's coming home late walks in the door. How do you react? Most of us react from our story, right? We react from that history of abandonment, or maybe this is somebody who's been late over and over again. And they walk in the door, and you open your mouth, and it usually doesn't sound too good. Where have you been? Or something like that. And then the cycle, and then if it's my best beloved, he starts feeling like I'm his mom, and then we get going on that one, and pretty soon it's pretty awful. Not fun. And the cycle is happening again, isn't it? One more time of suffering. This place of noticing the pleasantness and unpleasantness of things is so important because it's the place where we can continue our suffering or possibly end it. That's the very, very good news. It's the place as you sit where you notice, oh, this is very pleasant. Do you notice that on your cushion? Probably in a good sitting, this is really pleasant. I wonder what it would be like to sit a 10-day retreat. Or maybe, maybe I could come to the two-month retreat. Or I could go to Thailand and become a nun. And let me think. And pretty soon, I'll go talk to Gil. He'll know how to do that. And pretty soon, you're planning your two years in Thailand as a Buddhist nun, all because you had a pleasant sitting and you didn't notice it. And of course, the other thing can happen. It can be really unpleasant, and you can spin out in how you'd much rather be doing something, anything else, rather than sitting here at Spirit Rock. Maybe Sufi dancing is the better practice, and you're figuring out how to do that. And we don't see. And so that's, we, we're, we practice with it here on the cushion in order to begin to work with it also in our everyday life. It's the feeling tone of our experience. It's called Vedana in, in the Pali. So the Buddha says we have to notice this. This is the place. It's so critical. And if you're caught in the story, then we are seeing through the lens of the story and 
were really unskillful, and in the case of the person being late, maybe you even end the relationship, you know, because you didn't see clearly. And it's not that you don't stop to say, are you all right? Or maybe to say, oh, I'm so scared, or whatever it is that is really true. We see what we want to see. Enormous suffering can arise when this happens. Enormous suffering. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's the kind of suffering that comes when we try to fit our experience into a story and when we desperately want things to be different from the way that they are. So one of the things that's really important to say is we can't change what brings us to any particular moment. We all have our histories. Whatever happened in your past, good, bad, and indifferent, the abuse, the love, the difficulties, the parents you had, the relationships you've had, the teachers you've had, all of those things, all of that happened. We are the inheritors of the reverberations of many, many, many actions, of our own actions and those of others. And you will experience any given situation as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral because of that. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yeah? So it will push your buttons. It will bring up feelings. All of that is true. But what creates the problem is you don't recognize that moment. You don't recognize it. You don't recognize, oh, it's pleasant and I need to watch for the desire kicking in, or it's unpleasant and I need to watch for the aversion and the reactivity kicking in, or maybe some boredom because it's in that rare neutral moment, you know. And so we write the sequel to whatever the story is. So in my stories that I started with, my friend grew up and she continued to have a whole series of medical experiences which were pretty horrifying. And this was a person who felt really small and really vulnerable and terrified whenever she needed to go to a doctor or a dentist and seemed to be completely unable to defend herself and, and often then hid it became shameful, actually, that if anything was wrong with her, it was an occasion of shame, and um, would sometimes stay away from medical treatment rather than getting what she needed because it was just too difficult. She couldn't see. This lens of suffering was so thick for her. There had been so much. It was very, very hard not to see through that story. And as for me, um, you know, I looked at my marriage that had been going on for, I don't know, 12 or 15 years at the time, and looked, looked it seemed pretty unpleasant, didn't look like he was going to be changing anytime soon, and I could feel the pleasantness of this new relationship. This guy looked pretty interesting. He was somebody who was a meditator, which my husband is not. And... You know, I never saw the lens at all. I just thought I was clear because I have something of a reputation for being clear. Everybody else said, oh, you must be clear, which was really not helpful at all. (laughs) And so I prepared to 
you know, to do the dastardly deed. And, on, and our friend Ahimsa went out and began to kill people. And he, you know, he was a serial killer in the time of the Buddha, and he killed more and more, and of course, pretty soon, what he did to keep count, it said, is he chopped off a finger from each of his victims, and he strung them on a, these necklaces around his neck. So he, got, he acquired the, game, the name Angulimala, and that means a mala, a necklace of fingers. And so he'd gotten to 999. He just needed one more. And he was out one day, and he saw this monk walking in the distance. And he needed this. He was actually, this, the story says, he was on his way to kill his mother, which is a really bad thing to do. <laughs> and, um, and so he saw this monk, and he thought, aha, he'll do. And we know who the monk was, right? The monk was the Buddha. So the emperor, in his story, of course, was caught by everybody else's stories, including his own, because he was the emperor. So you know how it is with the emperor. You want to be really careful and tell him only what he wants to hear. And so it was very, very hard for him to find a teacher, a spiritual teacher, who would tell him the truth. And, and on, you know, it was quite similar to that other emperor who no one would tell he had no clothes on, right? You remember that story? And so they would tell him easy things, you know, modify your diet, build a monastery, do these exercises. They never would tell him anything really solid. And one day in his court, there walked in this tall, this is China of the 12th century, so people were pretty short, really tall, big, blue-eyed, red-haired guy who seemed to have this very interesting energy about him. So, the good news is that it is possible to interrupt the cycle. It is possible to interrupt the cycle. We can catch ourselves before we react. This is one of the places where what we do here in the slowness and quiet of the retreat is so important for informing, being skillful, and awakened in your everyday life. So you notice, keep working at noticing, this, pleasant is, uh, this experience is pleasant or it's not, and you begin to notice, oh, look, all my hatred and aversion and irritability is coming up, or all my desire and wanting is coming up. Not too long ago, I was at the theater with um, some friends in, at, in the summer in Santa Cruz. We have this great Shakespeare festival, and we had reserved seats, but somehow our reserved seats had gotten lost, and these friends of mine who practice, and I and my husband were standing there waiting for the ushers to get it untangled and figured out. And I was annoyed that they had lost our seats, and how could they do this, and and I was beginning to do my grumpy and irritable thing and be the queen, be signs. And my, the woman of this other couple is, is a very good friend, and she knows me pretty well, and she can kind of give it to me every now and then. And, and she's practiced a lot. And she leaned over and she said, unpleasant, 
unpleasant, unpleasant. (laughs) Which was wonderful. It was such a gift. I went, oh yeah, right, unpleasant. Okay. And I didn't actually do anything really embarrassing. And she really saved me. You know, she, she, she cut into the cycle rather than me. It was very helpful. So if you've got a really good friend, sometimes that's useful. They can help you out with this. So that's really the question. Whatever the situation is, how can I interrupt the cycle of suffering? How can I do this just a little bit differently this time? And maybe I will be happier, and so will everything else. So my friend worked really hard on this thing about her medical situation and very slowly began to learn to protect herself in the medical world. And not too long ago, she went to see somebody, I don't know, a root canal or something like that, and the dentist was really nasty and arrogant and cold. And she fired him. Yes, this is very good. And she found someone that she really liked and who was kind to her and gentle. And she said to me, I feel taller and more beautiful and as though I have more energy. Isn't that wonderful? You know, just learning to do that. And so she'd stepped out of her story, at least in that case. And she's been back and forth a few times since. But she really did find a way to see without seeing through that very thick lens of all those old stories. For me... I was busy being clear, right? And fortunately, being in the Dharma world, and so was this other guy, we were good about precepts, so nothing happened. But I wasn't too stupid. But then I went to see a nice Tibetan Lama. I thought, surely he'll want me to be with another meditator. (laughs) I described the whole situation. He leaned over and he looked at me. And he said about my husband, he said, you must not hurt this man. This was not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) And then, you know, another friend talked to me about the social importance of committed relationships. And slowly, 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 I began to see that I was caught and that I wasn't seeing so clearly. And one day I looked at Russell. I'd come back from a long trip which I had actually thought might be the beginning of the separation, and I looked at him, and I realized I wasn't ever going to leave. And I haven't, actually. You know. Angulimala said, Stop, old man, stop, to the Buddha. And the Buddha stopped and looked at Angulimala, and said, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, everything changed. And the Emperor Wu realized that this man who was in his court was really different somehow, and he might say something new to him. And so he said to him, well, um, what um, what is the merit of you know, building all of these wonderful monasteries, because he'd built a lot of monasteries. And this man said, no merit. Not what you say to the emperor. 
And he said, well, what is the point of these holy teachings, these wonderful holy teachings? And this man said, nothing special, vast emptiness. And then he said to this big red-haired man, who are you? This is the one I really love. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. So he had met this man, whom he later learned was Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage, who stripped away all of his lenses, even the most basic story of who he was. So my friend is continuing to live her life, perhaps a bit more at ease with her body and its care, but as I said, a bit up and down. And my marriage has grown and deepened in ways that I could never have dreamed possible before that. It really woke us both up. And now, actually, we teach weekends to couples about working with relationship as a spiritual practice. So um, it certainly did, I think, benefit us, and maybe we hope others. And we've really worked at trying to hear each other and not see each other through the lenses of the old history that we both bring to the relationship. And Angulimala actually became a monk, and then he became an arahant. Isn't that wonderful? Completely enlightened, even though he continued to experience some of the karma of having been a murderer. Every now and then, people in villages would stone him and things, and the Buddha (laughs) would just say, you know, you got to bear it. But the other wonderful thing about Angulimala, we laugh, but you know, The other wonderful thing is that it's said that he became expert at helping women in childbirth. There's something, so that's one of those little interesting twists to the story that I ponder every now and then. Why that? Why that? But you know, we can all come up with some answers for that. And the Emperor Wu lived much more happily. And every now and then, he would step out of the emperor story, it's said, and he would go and give himself to a monastery as a slave. And then he would scrub toilets and chop wood and do all of the things that you did if you were the sort of the bottom of the heap in the monastery. And he didn't have to be the emperor, he was just a, a monk, you know. And then after a while, it said the people in the court um, who wanted him back as their emperor would go and get him and pay a lot of money to the monastery to get him back. So it's a good fundraising scheme for the monasteries. <laughs> So he didn't completely escape his emperor karma, but he certainly got out of it more than, uh, and was less caught than he had been. So whatever cycle you're going back to, you don't need to continue it. You don't. And you can give your attention to it, and you can learn to be present. The word vipassana, we might want to remind you, means to see clearly. So this is a practice in trying to see clearly, really being with an experience, waiting in the experience, not being in a hurry to fix it or change it or make the decision, because if you do that, almost certainly you're doing it out of looking through the lens. You know, We don't even always know the answer. Not knowing is really wonderful. That creates that space where you can give your attention to the experience and 
play around a little. Is this, you know, am I being reactive? What's happening here? What's the most skillful choice in this situation? Really noticing the feeling tone of your experience. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Don't bite the hook. Don't bite the hook. It doesn't have to be big. You know, the other night, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was in an airplane on the tarmac. It had taken us an hour and a half to get from the gate to the tarmac for a variety of reasons. And then they said, we're 25th in line. And then they said, now we're, after about maybe another 45 minutes, now we're 14th in line, but we're going to have to go to the other side of the airport and we might run out of fuel before we can take off, so we might have to go back and get more fuel. And at some point I said, it's unpleasant. This is really unpleasant. And then I realized actually this was a good time to just rest with my breath and not be too hooked into what was going on. The breath was much more pleasant. So it can be small. It doesn't have to be a big thing where you can begin to experiment with this. That moment of presence, that moment where you perceive, maybe just for a second, where you perceive clearly, this is a moment of freedom. This is a very, very important thing. The other night, Gil taught us about here, Ida, here, you know? And it's that being willingness to be right here, not back there in the story or over there in the story, but right here, seeing what exactly is the characteristic of this moment. And it's that here that brings the freedom. And it's the in here that we can see clearly. And it's here when we are not caught by our old conditioning. So I thought I'd end with a poem. This is Cheslav Milos. And it's about a day of not being so caught in his story. A day so happy. Fog lifted early. I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was nothing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that I was once that man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw the blue sea and sails. So let's just sit and breathe together for a moment. Sit just as you are, nothing fancy.
So thank you very much for listening. We now have about 25 minutes for walking. Perhaps if the bell could be at five minutes to nine instead of 10. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.